0: Hi there, before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about an issue of Design Museum Magazine we're working on and how you can help. The issue is called the policing issue, how one of the most powerful institutions functions by design, out later this spring. You can help this special issue come to life via Kickstarter. With your support, it'll feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color paid for their contributions to this special edition of the magazine. The Policing Issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers, to the ways in which design perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, and we'll even talk about the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to help make this special issue happen and help us make important impact with this content. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on support our Kickstarter campaign to learn more and make your pledge. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about the design of reuse models. It's estimated that nearly 250 billion single-use cups are distributed globally each year, and most of them will end up in a landfill. So what can be done? In 2018, Closed Loop Partners launched the NextGen Consortium to address the world's single-use food packaging waste. Together with leading brands, industry experts, and innovators, the NextGen Consortium is reimagining food service packaging. Joining us today as guest co-host is Kate Daly. Kate is the managing director for the Center of Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners. And our special guest is Chris Krohn, who is portfolio lead at IDEO, a global design company, which is running and designing the pilots in the San Francisco Bay Area on behalf of NextGen Consortium. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design Exhibition to your home, right to you. Redesign Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom. Why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, on to this week's topic about the design of reuse models. 11.5 million metric tons of plastic waste are entered into our oceans every year. So designers are rethinking a new generation of reuse systems to mitigate the harm on the planet. Closed Loop Partners, an impact investment firm, launched the NextGen Consortium to explore these sustainable alternatives. And their first initiative sets out to rethink the single-use to-go fiber cup. I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Kate Daly. Kate is the Managing Director for the Center of Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners. There, she leads a team for research, analysis, and collaboration to accelerate the transition to a circular economy. Previously, Kate has served as Senior Vice President at the New York City Economic Development Corporation, and as the Executive Director of the New York City Landmark Preservation Commission. She holds a BA from Cornell University and a Master's in Historic Preservation from the University of Pennsylvania. Kate's work at the NextGen Consortium is improving the design of reuse models. Kate, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Sam, great to be here.
0: Ah, it's great to have you. I'm excited to learn more about this. I wanna learn about your work at Closed Loop Partners, so tell us about that. And what is a closed loop economy? What does that even mean?
1: Well, a circular economy, it's actually a concept that's been around for a long time under different names. If you think about industrial ecology or even indigenous stewardship here among Native American peoples, it's the idea that there's no such thing as waste. That waste is a resource to be cycled in in our communities, in our systems. And the circular economy rethinks the flow of materials in our systems so that we stop using a linear take-make waste pattern and approach to resources, and instead think of waste as something that can be regenerative, that can be circular, and that, that these valuable materials stay in play. A lot of people might hear that and think, oh, there's recycling, but Recycling is is one component. It's reuse and of course most important of all is reduction, using less of these materials. And of course, there's really interesting innovative business models like renting and the, the refill and reuse that you just mentioned is, is an innovative. New thing that kind of recalls some of our old systems that uh, our grandparents who, who got their milk bottles dropped off and picked up and refilled. We're, we're seeing some interesting models there now. But I think one of the most important things about the circular economy is the the R of redesign, because it's at the moment of design that the entire life cycle of of a product or material is determined. At that moment of design, a designer is making the decision whether this is going to end up in a landfill after one use. Is it something that will stay in play? Is it what's called a monstrous hybrid so that it's combining materials that can never be taken apart and harvested and used again? And so that moment of design is, is so critical for thinking about is it going to stay in play, circulation, is it going to be disassemble.
0: I was thinking about recycling as as you were saying that, but then I was also thinking it just seems like we're so far away from what you're suggesting in terms of like just so much waste. But you also mentioned indigenous people and some of their practices. Can you say a little bit more about what that means?
1: Well, circularity is not a new concept. It's just that free market capitalism and ideas of planned obsolescence and, uh, you know, continually innovating and developing new and diverse types of, for example, packaging, um, that that sort of diversity is is often at odds with the recovery systems that we have in place. And and so when you look at a more cyclical approach, when you look at remanufacturing, for example, in the auto industry, in the U.S., used parts, uh, there's a huge economy around used parts. There's an economy about rental cars. Uh, There's economy around used cars. And so in the automotive industry, that's that's a, a historically strong industry in the U.S. where a lot of these principles have already been at play, but they're not called the circular economy. So I think there are examples that we can turn to in industry as there and, and in indigenous stewardship, where it's really looking at regenerative soil practices, how to make sure that your inputs and your outputs are balanced there are lessons for us to learn there that make it not seem so daunting and not so out of reach as it may seem at first.
0: So this sounds like this is what led to the NextGen Consortium. Can you tell us a little bit about what the consortium does and what you're all thinking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The The NextGen Consortium is, is something that Close Loop Partners launched in 2018 in partnership with Starbucks and McDonald's and, and several other companies like Coca-Cola, Nestle, Wendy's. And it really was to address this challenge of the single-use fiber cup. And I know that 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 sounds like a a small thing when you think about the the larger global waste challenges that that we're all facing, but there are about 250 billion of these single-use paper cups that that are distributed globally each year. And the vast majority of those end up in landfills. Sometimes they end up in our waterways. And what we think of as a paper cup that we might get our coffee in every morning is actually also a plastic cup. The fiber is coated with a plastic liner to make sure that it doesn't get soggy or or break through. And that's what leads to real challenges in the recovery. Paper mills don't necessarily want to have plastic with their paper. And so we launched this effort to look at innovative design solutions that can replace the current plastic lined paper cup with something new. And those new innovations might be a new type of liner that doesn't have the same issues. That might be a bio-based liner. And certainly also reusable and refillable models ended up coming to the fore as something that even as as recently as 2018 was something that was pretty new and nascent. And since then, we've seen a lot of work and development in that area.
0: You mentioned McDonald's, Starbucks, Wendy's. These are all competitors. So I got to imagine there's a challenge in bringing these you know, business competitors together, but also if, if you don't bring them together, you might solve it in one little corner here, but the problem persists. So how, how are you bringing them together and finding some shared purpose and mission?
1: What we do is turn competitors into collaborators. And it's for that exact reason that you mentioned. An individual a company on its own cannot have an impact and cannot solve these systemic global challenges. A company typically absolutely loses control over its product or packaging the minute it's left the store or right after point of sale. Whereas the downstream recovery efforts, collection, customer behavior, policy, these are all things that really need collective action if you're if you're going to have impact. And so at the Center for the Circular Economy, we take a very holistic approach. We bring together these competitors, but we also have NGOs, nonprofits at the table, environmental and scientific technical advisors, of course, material recovery experts compost facility experts, um, and designers, consumer behavior experts. We have a big tent, and we bring everybody together to really look at every stage of the value chain, both upstream and downstream, to identify where the negative impacts, and also looking really closely at what are some unintended consequences we could introduce by bringing in a new approach to design, by bringing in new material innovation? And so we do a huge amount of testing and refining. And so we've tested these innovative new solutions, whether it's the paper cup or the refillable cups or cups made of innovative materials like seaweed. We test them for performance and durability. We test them for microplastics. In the case of fiber cups, we test them for repulping at paper mills to make sure that they can extract a good percentage of, of paper. And we test the wastewater that comes out of that process. And it's all part of de-risking innovation and serving as that party that can link the disruptive innovations and in startups and entrepreneurs with our global brand partners and, and de-risk these products can get on their shelves or, or go into service for them without having created a trade-off or an unintended consequence that has another negative environmental impact that we we want to anticipate and control for.
0: People might have a sense of the fiber cup journey, right? From from a tree, you know, <laughs> to a to a cup and then into a landfill as you as you mentioned. The alternative you mentioned this as well is maybe a reusable cup. What's the, what's the journey of that look like?
1: It's a great question because the it's so dependent on the type of material that's chosen for the cup. And so for the fiber cup, the, the journey, that's exactly what we've mapped. From the very first days of the consortium, we mapped out the current journey of the cup and it ends, we, we drew a graphic of it of it and ends in this really ugly looking landfill. And then the future journey of the cup where it's it's going to a compost facility or it's being recycled and harvested because the fiber is really quite high value and, and desirable as a market commodity. And that's what we're always looking for. What is the way that we can pull materials through the system instead of just pushing them through? And what all of us do every day is we push materials into the system that nobody wants and where there's nowhere for it to go, but a landfill. And we want to upend that. And so with the fiber cup, that's valuable fiber. How do we incentivize every player along the value chain to keep that pulled through. And with reusable cups, it's similar. Just because they're reusable doesn't mean that we don't also have to account for their end-of-life recovery. And so in the case of, let's say, an aluminum or a stainless steel cup, that has a pretty high carbon footprint upstream in terms of extraction, even if it does have a high recycled content. And so we need to make sure that we have a good understanding of how many times that needs to be reused before it's competitive with its single-use competitor.
0: Yeah, it's fun to think of cups as competing with each other.
1: Yes, it's cup-throat, the competition <laughs> between these cups. No holds barred. And, and so but that's what we have to think about because on the one hand, customers might really like the high-quality design of a stainless steel cup and might be more motivated to use that then for a reusable. So that's an important factor. But let's say that that stainless steel cup is more likely to get dinged up during the washing process. And a customer will say, that looks old and used and dirty. I don't want to use that. Well, if we didn't get, let's say, over 100 uses out of that, we just lost this game of trying to improve the system. And so the material selection is is really important.
0: What about human behavior, right? Is part of this also incentivizing people or changing behavior? I mean, if you can replace the existing fiber cup and, and it kind of keeps in that closed loop, then the human behavior is just the same, right? It's like we're using the cup. Maybe we're throwing it in a different bin. But the reusable just feels like we have to educate and shift people's thinking, which feels like harder <laughs> than just changing materials.
1: That's right. Well, I guess for me, I, I never use the phrase behavior change because that's an impossible standard to meet. We're not changing behavior. Even the greenest among us are still not able to control what opportunities or options we have. And so I think the way that I look at it is how do we create more options and choices for people that, that are the greener choice, but that are also affordable and inclusive. And we're all downstream Of decisions that have been made so long ago. And so when you go into that coffee shop, you don't have control over the the design choices that were made early on. You can choose to bring your own cup. Some cafes won't accept that for different reasons. And so I think because we have so little control of of those upstream decisions, it's on the, the retailers and the brands to make sure that they have tapped the right type of innovation and the work that we do at the center very much focuses on consumer engagement and gleaning consumer insights about what are the different occasions where people use a cup in another initiative that, that we launched last year our consortium to reinvent the retail bag we did extensive research into when do people need a bag why do they use it And where is the single-use plastic bag flawed? It's not the perfect solution. How do we replace it with reusable bags, with incentives for customers to bring the bag that they already own? A lot of these consumer behavior insights are relevant to the cup, to the bag, to so many other products that are these iconic products we use every day in our lives. And so I think that we need to provide better options for consumers instead of asking us all to to change our behavior that simply aligns with the options that we're given.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Amazing work. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Closed Loop Partners and their work in the NextGen Consortium, you can visit their website, closedlooppartners.com. And Kate, please stick around and we'll bring Chris into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast check out our kickstarter campaign for our latest magazine special issue it's called the policing issue how one of the most powerful institutions functions by design out later this spring at the design museum we're always working on projects that explore the transformative power of design whether it's our educational programs the workplace innovation summit our books this magazine is no exception we're tackling how institutions are defined by their design With your support on Kickstarter, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color who will pay for their contributions to this special issue. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers, to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to make this happen. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on our Kickstarter campaign. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Chris Crone. Chris is a project lead at IDEO, a global design company and an innovation partner for the NextGen Consortium. Chris has his MBA in Design Strategy from the California College of the Arts, Since then, his work has focused on circular economy initiatives in partnership with leading Fortune 100s like Nike, Starbucks, and Coca-Cola. He is currently leading the Next Gen Cup Challenge. Chris's designs are pushing the boundaries of what's possible and achievable through innovation. Chris, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: We've talked about OpenIDO on the show before, but can you tell our audience, what is
2: OpenIDO? How does it work? OpenIDEO is an open innovation platform. We have a community of uh, a few hundred thousand designers and creatives and innovators from all over the world um, who participate in um, challenges, come together to solve problems and tackle big, sticky um, issues that are going on in the world. Uh, Generally, we'll be focusing on social or environmental causes. Um, and really using that global community to learn and bringing a diversity of perspectives so that we can learn faster and more effectively together.
0: That's awesome. The power of the crowd, so important. We talked a little bit about this with Kate, but I'm curious, your perspective of, you know, we love talking about design challenges. So what is the design challenge that these one-time use cups pose to the world?
2: Well, so the, you know, one of the challenges with the current Sort of traditional single-use cup that we're all quite used to is uh, many of them have uh, some form of a plastic liner uh, within the fiber paper cup. Many consumers don't, aren't aware of that, and it seems like it may be recyclable or compostable, um, but it's much more complex. And we also have um, a disconnect with recovery infrastructure in many regions of the, the country and the world. Um, so those cups in, in many cases are not recyclable or recoverable. That leads us into um, the the challenge of designing a, a new service or a new system that can can begin to remedy that issue um, and, and create a new offering for customers to engage with.
0: How, how does it work? So the you know it's the next gen cup challenge for folks who haven't participated. You know what does it look like uh, to put on one of these challenges?
2: Well, Close loop really took the, the lead in bringing together um, an amazing array of, of corporates um, and, and partners um, that really have the present the opportunity to create change at scale, given the volume um, and the, the scope of, of their organizations on a global level. So once those folks come together, we, we begin the work of deciding. Uh, what is the right messaging, what's the right framing of the problem, and how do we present that in a way that's going to activate, excite, and inspire designers, problem solvers, startups, even large organizations who are already maybe creating innovations in in their labs or their studios uh, to come together and and start to approach this problem. So we'll, we'll put the call to action out. We call it a how might we statement. And we then do a lot of work in getting the word out, so reaching out to the right segments of innovators, of designers, um, identifying who we'd like to be engaging with, and also thinking behind the scenes on what's the evaluation criteria, what does success really look like as we, we begin to get innovations submitted.
0: Can you share some of the things that came out of this, some of the innovations I don't know, are there winners to
2: the challenge? Absolutely, yeah. We, we saw such a range of, of concepts um, everywhere from student teams who saw this you know, as a great opportunity to explore and expand some of their collaborative measures um, and, and some of these early stage ideas, all the way to large publicly traded companies. We did ultimately select a range of winners. We saw uh, nearly 500 submissions from over 32 countries. And ultimately, uh, we selected 12 of those winners uh, to receive funding, six of whom went on to an accelerator program that uh, Closed Loop and IDEO ran together. Ultimately, we took uh, four of those concepts, two of which were reusable cup systems, uh, and moved them into a series of live pilots um, across the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Oh, wow. I want to hear more about those. Can you tell us what the pilots? I'd love to hear about both. How did each one of them work? Uh, What's the process in the system
2: behind them? So the pilots were really a culmination of of sort of an iterative series of de-risking endeavors. Uh, We began with with smaller tests through the accelerator program, and that was everything from kind of setting up local lemonade stands in our IDEO offices and getting feedback from designers um, to actually working with uh, large corporate campuses um, in Palo Alto and and Silicon Valley uh, to get feedback from, from employees there and a slightly less risky open environment in that case. That allows us to learn quickly, sort of iron out any issues that may be occurring, either on the technology side, uh, communication and signage um, to how the actual experience is uh, conducted with customers. From there, we were able to then introduce it live into the the sort of open market. So we're able to partner with 14 uh, cafes across the Bay Area. We're in Palo Alto, Oakland, uh, and San Francisco. And each one of those cafes has a unique set of needs. They have different customer types and segments, they have different layouts and footprints, um, and they have different flows of operations and how their employees work. So that's really presents us an amazing testing bed to say, how do we then create a system or a service that works for as many stakeholders as possible while figuring out what sort of needs to be true and then what can be variable and customized for the needs of different cafes and, and locations.
0: Hmm. So take me through the experience. I show up at the cafe. I don't drink coffee. Okay. So let's say I order a tea or order a lemonade. What happens then? And what happens through the whole
2: process of reuse? Exactly. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it it is not just for coffee. It's for all beverages, hot and cold. Um, And (laughs) and we really put a lot of effort into designing the cups to ensure that they did work for a range of temperatures and and types, Uh, even smoothies, if you're so inclined.
0: Oh, that's my drink. There we go. We're talking smooth. I, get, I go to the cafe and I order a
2: smoothie. What happens next? Well, it really actually starts before that. And so one of the things that, that we recognize is that this is a new relationship that customers are going to be having with a cup. Typically, it's not something you think all that much about. You order, as you say, your smoothie and you're thinking about your smoothie and the cup simply a vessel by which that is delivered to you. Now, here we are requiring, you know, just by the nature of, of a reusable cup, we're requiring a new set of actions. So we really have to think about awareness as that first step. Um, And that can happen either through social media. Um, Many of our cafes were actually putting out email lists and blasts and social media ads, and they were seeing great engagement. A lot of people were very excited and expressed that excitement online. Once you walk into a cafe, it's important to have signage so that you're aware that this new service exists. Finally, you'll go up to sort of in the first portion of things, you'll go up to the the barista and, and you'll place your order. And there are some decisions to be made on the design side as well. One of the things that we really learned is that there is a difference between opt in and opt out, meaning if you're ordering and decide to, uh, to order in a reusable cup and you ask for that, that, that's one possibility. But there's also the instance where it is presumed that your order will come in a reusable cup and that helps to set new norms and establish new standards. So those are some of the decisions we, we experimented with um, during those pilots. From there, you'll place your order and you'll associate yourself as a user with that cup so that once you check it out, like a library book, um, there's ultimately a moment in which you're going to be returning that. Um, And that can happen also in a number of ways. One of the biggest learnings that, that we had was this experience really has to be seamless. So integration into existing operations, existing technologies like point-of-sale moments or point-of-sale software platforms that these cafes are already using is going to lower the barrier for customers. It's really quite an odd experience to create a profile for a cup, right, suddenly on, on a technology platform. So the more that we can plug into what's already happening, the better. From there, baristas will create your smoothie as they typically would. And there, too, we did a lot of thinking around how do we streamline that flow for barista operations. You know, even uh, a few seconds can be a a real backlog at busy times. Um, So making sure that things are placed well, that you can easily grab and denest those cups, uh, that they work with the current machinery that they're using to make uh, the beverages um, and then ultimately at the point of handoff with customers, we need to make sure that that is also as smooth as possible. Uh, and also that customers can select the right order in the right cup. So once the barista hands off the, the beverage to you, it's important to make sure that you're getting the right order and that the right cup's going to that customer. So there are some features that we explore, um, for instance, scanning. There are a couple different technologies such as QR or RFID um, or, or other barcodes even to ensure that the the customer has the right item. I think it's also important to note when we mention scanning, is that we're not tracking users or gathering data and following you around with your beverage. We hear that a lot. It's really just to ensure that uh, that cup is going to be returned. And if not, um, someone is ultimately responsible for that item, again, just like a library book. So you, you get your order and you enjoy it as you would typically. You can enjoy that in a cafe environment if you're so inclined and return that cup right there. In that case, it's quite similar to ceramic uh, mug. Uh, but the real beauty of the reasonable system is that you can leave, right? It, it is a to-go, enabling a to-go um, experience. So you can travel on to work, jump into your car, drive to where you need to be, and consume that beverage at, at your leisure. And ultimately, uh, when you are uh, completed, uh, you know, when the process completed, when you're done and ready to return that cup, there will be moments to drop that cup off. And so, that's also a big design consideration because that's really getting into all of this sort of. Um, new service system thinking that would not typically be um, considered for a single-use cup. So when we're thinking about dropping off that cup, that can happen in the cafe you ordered it in or another cafe. Um, Ideally, you know, uh, in the future, that will also be available on street corners um, or in, in public transit sites, but we're a little bit further away from that now. And it's also thinking about what is the experience of dropping that cup off? How far are customers traveling with that cup? Where do we need to design those drop points to be in order to plug into their natural flow? You know, are they commuting to work? Are they going home? Are they on their way to the gym? And how can we ensure that that drop point is conveniently located so you're not hauling a bunch of cups around for you know, prolonged periods of time? And then there's an entire back end logistics system to consider. These cups need to be um, logged, um, picked up by a, a logistics provider, and ultimately cleaned and sanitized. And that's you know really Paramount for the this, this system to work is hygiene and sanitation. So ensuring that's happening at the sort of highest of standards that you can quality check and control uh, how that's happening, and then redistributing those cups back out to the cafe providers uh, so to start it all over again.
1: Chris, we were fortunate in that we wrapped up these pilots early last year before the pandemic started shutting down cafes and, and restaurants. What do you think the impact has been and will be of, of COVID-19 on people's attitudes toward reusable cups?
2: It's a great question. Yeah, in fact, we actually bridged the pandemic um, the last few days, really the last week or so of the pilots were kind of as the pandemic was, was becoming a thing here in the U.S., which actually yielded amazing learnings because we got to understand how folks were perceiving hygiene, cleanliness and reusability in a pre-pandemic world and then sort of in a post-pandemic world. And I think the biggest impact that that we saw is there's a difference in perception when we're using words like reusable, even though it's very similar to ceramic dishware in a restaurant, there's just a higher level of sort of thinking that folks are going to be applying to this sort of a service. So there are two real learnings that we had around hygiene and sanitation. There's both the perception of and the, the actuality of hygiene. And so those are really twofold. The perception of is how we're communicating, how we're displaying the cups you know, making sure that every step of the process feels, looks, and, and is clean. And that is even in, in the mobile app or the, the checkout experience. You want to feel like you're you're at a, a sophisticated and clean um, service. And then there's, of course, the actuality of hygiene. And that's looking at um, standard health and safety regulations. What are the typical protocols for dishware, for catering services? Meeting those and really exceeding those and, and ensuring that that's true uh, every step of the way.
0: Chris, I wonder if you can describe what are the designs of from the pilot you know, in detail, the materials, the, the look, the feel.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. We, well, I think what was great about the pilot is we were working with two different startups, Cup Club and Muse, um, who have different cup designs. And so that allows us to learn more quickly, again, is, is to what are customers desiring, what's appealing to them, um, and, and how are these things, uh, these, these items moving through a system. Uh, so the cup club cup is, is a really lovely uh, form factor. It's sort of just an, an eggshell white. It actually has slightly rounded uh, curves to it, almost egg-like in its form. The outside has a really nice texture to it. It's made of polypropylene and the lid is nicely fit on there. Really in, in some ways, the lid looks like a, a sippy cup. You might remember from <laughs> being a kid, or if you have kids, you, you may uh, see these more often. And, and again, that, uh, those considerations have really made it uh, quite a desirable form factor and visually appealing.
1: Well, Chris, I think with with all of these efforts that we partner on and Chris and I have partnered on on two different efforts, one to reinvent the fiber cup and another to reinvent the retail bag, we approach it through the lens of innovate test scale in that order. And it's that testing part in the middle where we we get a lot of surprises. What, what was the most surprising thing for you that came out of these pilots? I think there are
2: a couple of things that really stood out that were surprising and exciting. Um, first, as I mentioned, the sort of viral net promoter score that we were, sort of see- that we were seeing from these cups. Um, people are hearing about them on social media. They would maybe come visit the cafe one day, uh, see that this system was happening. And more often than not, we were hearing, finally, I've been waiting for this, uh, and it is finally available to us. It makes so much sense. These individuals were then coming back the next day with coworkers, with friends. Those friends were coming back with other friends. Um, So we really sort of saw that viral um, promoter aspect occurring quite organically, which was really exciting. The other big surprise I think we saw was in the design of the drop points and that point of return. Because, again, that's sort of the portal that uh, from cup as vessel to cup as service and into system. And so thinking about where those drop points are placed, uh, we really learned a lot. We started to, with permission, of course, um, tracking where users were, how far they were traveling. And so that started by simply asking, hey, we're doing a study. Uh, Can we we sort of follow you and and see where things go? And we're using uh, some web apps that we built um, to actually create a, a live map. And understanding where f- traffic and pattern flows happening in a city and about how far are people traveling with these items before they're done or ready to let go. Um, and what we found was it's roughly in an urban area, of course, this is San Francisco and Palo Alto, which is semi-urban, suburban. People are traveling an average distance of about 0.2 miles, which falls into what we call a pedestrian walk shed. And so that was a big learning for us because the, from there, we can start to understand the, the actual geographic layout of cafe to drop point, And then where are these items going to travel to be washed and then be returned? Um, so that really gave us a nice radius and a sort of a playing field um, to think about uh, where things are placed.
0: I'm curious about the accelerator. So everything you've described, Chris, there's, it sounds like there's about a million different touch points and systems and messaging that need to be designed. So how did that accelerator work to help map those out and really craft it? Because this is not just designing a cup.
2: It, there's so much surrounding this cup. There is so much surrounding this cup. So the categories and the way we we looked at how do we measure and understand what's going to be valuable and successful for these items is taking sort of the classic design approach of desirability, feasibility, and viability. In this case, we added circularity, right? Because that's an entirely different consideration and needs to be included. So... One of the fun things about the accelerator was that we had, you know, six teams. Three of those were reusable, and three were single use. And in those single use, you know, they're innovative new materials. Um, they're different uh, manufacturing methods to to create really um, desirable cups on the single use side. But we're looking across that, and it's really about iteration to get to the point of testing. So of course, we're looking at business models and marketing and website and organizational structure. You know, investability. All of the things that any startup would have to be looking at. But we're then also thinking about. How is this cup going to plug into a sort of an existing legacy system? And I think that's where we were really able to help through acceleration was in partner development, collaboration across multiple stakeholders, looking at, for instance, material recovery facilities and their needs, looking at logistics providers, pairing cup teams up with cities to learn about how ordinance were being passed so that we could start to design and right-size everything to work harmoniously as a system. And then there's, of course, always the exciting aspect of Accelerators when we're getting to work with passionate founders who are dedicating their lives to solving these problems. It's just so infectious to be able to work with individuals that are excited um, and, and really bringing and designing some of the most um, beneficial things I think that we could be seeing in the world right now.
1: One thing that that Chris led in the Accelerator was... Bringing these designers and companies to places they've never been before. So, this field trip to a material recovery facility means that that we put their cups on the conveyor belt, and they these designers had to ask this question: Where does this go? This design, where does this go when when the customer is done with it? And Chris and his team also brought the companies behind the counter at a McDonald's to see how do the cups need to be stacked how does the staff there need to interact with these cups and that was the kind of exposure to real world situations that that I think these designers really benefited from
0: i'm curious how you see these findings these pilots and learnings relating to areas outside of cups right there's other you know single use things out there so how do you see this all kind of like inspiring what's next
1: the cup is just the beginning really as you heard from the intense level of detail that Chris conveyed, there's so much thinking that's going into this. And yes, we're absolutely solving for the cup, but because a shift in the cup requires systemic change, we can bring all of those lessons learned to other areas of food service packaging and and then beyond. And so we see a a huge opportunity in the cup being a, a teaching tool as we explore what is the impact of policy consumer behavior? How how does innovation truly get integrated when it's disrupting the status quo? Those are lessons that we can carry into other areas beyond the cup.
2: So what we were really doing is shifting the definition of singular product to product as part of a system. And those learnings apply Really everywhere, right? you know. The, it's it's in how are you communicating and aligning values, needs, and must haves for stakeholders. It's how are you shifting sort of legacy operations and identifying the gaps to connect that as a system. Um, so those learnings and and those communication styles and the decisions that we have to face uh, for cops really apply um, to any type of product as we shift it into a, a system and a service.
0: Yeah. Wow. it's Fascinating. The the humble cup, but it's, this is such important work. So thank you both for sharing, Chris. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Listeners, to learn more about Chris's work, visit com. And now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. This week, my weekly dose is for all the moms out there, particularly the working moms. I saw this on goodmorningamerica.com. Sydney Williams is a working mom. Uh, She has two sons, ages two and six months. And while she's caring for them, she's also the global director of brand marketing for GE. Working moms might just be the most undervalued workers in our society. And we are just leaving them behind and unsupported. And the pandemic is stretching their work and home lives seriously to the limit. So as the article by Kate Kindlin states, at least 275,000 women left the labor force this January alone, which pushes the total since the start of the pandemic to 2.3 million. That's 2.3 million leaving the workforce. That's from the National Women's Law Center. Uh, So Sydney had this idea. She rewrote her resume, but this time she only listed the skills she has learned as a new mother. And as she said, the result was very emotional for her because what she wrote looked a lot like her professional resume, right? This is, this is a job. Uh, so I wanna share a couple of the skills she mentioned. Uh, the first item is, I do everything you do, but I do it with one hand, literally. I hold on to what's important, hint, my baby, with all the strength I have in that one hand while juggling the 1 million daily tasks of life in the other. I ruthlessly prioritize. Every day I grow stronger and more efficient as a result, which I love that. Uh, Another one I'll share. I maintain positivity while my patience is pushed to the limit. My team has meltdowns. Emotions run high. New challenges arise daily. I lead with compassion, listen to debate, and encourage results through compromise. That one hits close to home for me since my home team includes a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Sydney shared her new resume on LinkedIn, and no surprise, a lot of people felt it spoke to them as well. So, kudos to Sydney, and I want to thank the working moms out there, including my wife, Nicole. And hey, if you're near in the vicinity of a working mom right now, figure out a way to support them as soon as possible. Okay, that's mine. Kate, you are up.
1: Sam, I love that one, and it, it's linked to mine. You're talking about the need for a more people centered labor market, and my example is people-centered design in the built environment and in housing. And there's a public housing project in Denmark called Circle House. And this this incorporates all the principles of of circularity in multiple public housing units. It's designed for disassembly so that 90% of its materials can be reused with no loss of value. All of those materials are documented in what's called a materials passport And the units are built on principles of modular design, so the tenants can even move existing walls as their living needs change. And I love this example of environmentally friendly design that doesn't need to sacrifice comfort, affordability, and flexibility.
0: So cool. Thanks so much for being here. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks, Sam. I had so much fun.
0: That's our show. I want to, again, thank Kate Daly and Chris Krohn for joining us, and thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the NextGen Consortium and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And we have another live podcast show coming up on April 23rd at 12 p.m. Eastern. We have Susie Wise, the former director of the D School at Stanford's K-12 Lab, who's currently teaching and writing a book for the upcoming School book series. And we have Matt Cressy from MIT's Integrated Design and Management Program uh, for a conversation about teaching design and empathy, particularly to the next generation of designers. Uh, So become a member of Design Museum and get your member-only live show tickets at designmuseumeverywhere.org and be part of the conversation. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Also, we have an awesome weekly e-newsletter that you can sign up on our website, so you'll always get the latest news from us right to your inbox. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amory Yates, with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.